You ever notice how the older you get, the more you realize you never really understand something, and so you don't need to anymore? It's funny how that works out. I mean, you remember having to navigate through high school and some of the, the awkward relationships. I mean, whether you're homeschool, private school, public school, whatever it was, do you remember just sort of that weird, awkward time of navigating those adolescent relationships? And think, man, it'd be a lot easier now if I could go back and do that with what I know now, but you won't, right? That, that's over. You won't navigate that again. That's behind you. That's similar to what's going on here in this next passage in Hebrews. Remember, these are first century Christians who are formerly Jews, and there's still a lingering enticement to go back to the old familiar ways, the way it had always been for them, the way that they were brought up, and they're thinking there might be something to all that. that, that that's, what they, that's what they know. And besides, too, I mean, Christianity, as it turns out, it it's, uh, seems, seems pretty hard. It's not, uh, it's not super easy, especially for these people. I mean, at this time, they're, they're, uh, they're going through some persecution that none of us can really relate to as 21st century Christians living in the West. And what the author does here is he points back to all that old covenant stuff that they know about, that they're familiar with, with new insights that they couldn't have had then. And it's weird because in finally seeing the real significance of all of it, when it really starts to come into focus, the conclusion they come to is it's no longer needed. But that shouldn't surprise us. That kind of stuff happens all the time. You know, by the time I have a fuller realization of how to raise children from birth to adulthood, I won't need to anymore. Some of you trying to figure out relationship stuff right now, trying to find a, a husband or a wife one day. When you have one, you won't need to understand dating anymore, right? You'll know more about it once you're married, and then you won't need it. Or you better not. <laughs> but let's look here at Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18, and see how he's showing them the significance of the old stuff in order to convince them to move on from it to move past it. Let's read now Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. 
And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these... There is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, Lord God, we do thank you for your word. That it is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It's more precious than gold, even fine gold. Sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Lord God, I pray now that you would move me out of the way, that you would allow for your word to be understood, heard, and believed this morning by the power of your spirit. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. As it turns out, this passage is really kind of simple. The author's still on the same idea here, pulling on that same thread that Jesus is infinitely superior to the Old Testament priesthood and sacrifices, but not as something new and entirely different. Remember, this isn't an out with an old, in with the new transition from the old covenant to the new covenant like we might think. We, we can tend to think of it that way, but it's a little bit different. God's not introducing an entirely new idea. He's not inventing an entirely new religion. This is the same God, after all. Right? He hasn't changed. His character hasn't changed. His law hasn't changed. He certainly hasn't changed his mind about the whole sin and judgment thing. He hasn't removed the bar. He hasn't lowered the bar. He has reached the bar in the person of Jesus Christ. That bar, that standard that no man could ever measure up to has been reached by Jesus. And everyone belonging to him by faith measures up. It wasn't possible before. And it is now. And that's what the author wants these first century Jewish Christians to see. He's not saying, forget everything you were ever told and come follow Jesus. No, he's saying, remember everything you've ever been told and see Jesus. It's all about him. It's only ever always been about him. Those psalms your ancestors sang spoke of him. The prophets had his words on their lips. He is the fulfillment of all that you have heard. Not something new and different, you see? So yes, the old covenant passes away, right? But only because the one it all pointed to has come. You can think of it as, as, as traveling to a destination. You're, you're going on a, on a road trip, right? And you've got ways running, or whatever inferior GPS system you like to use, Google or something. I mean, seriously, Waze is the best, isn't it? 
those of you that use Waze, it is. Yes, it is, Blake. Liar. Waze, it's just, it's, you know, police reported ahead. That's my favorite part. You know, let's ease up on the gas a little bit. But the idea is, whatever you use, you set the destination before you leave, don't you? That's the idea. You set the destination, you, you punch in where it is that you want to go, and you go there. And at some point as you're driving along on this road trip, driving along the interstate, you take an exit. You get off the interstate and keep going to your destination. That's been the destination the whole time, still going to that place. Over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go, still going to that same place. This is the way, and the interstate is part of the way that you got there. The old covenant is like that. The old covenant has passed away, but it's not as though God has just put up detour signs. It's just that if you stay on the interstate, you're never going to get to the destination that was programmed in from the beginning. It's not the way God has designed for you to get there. And what the author does here to show them that is he continues to contrast the Old Testament sacrifices with Christ's sacrifice. He proves that by doing away, uh, that, that all of the... the the animal sacrifices that he says are done away with, that's not a new idea either. It shouldn't surprise them that the animal sacrifices are done away with. They were always supposed to be temporary. The doing away of those sacrifices isn't some new and foreign idea or merely a feature of the New Testament that cropped up out of nowhere that the author's just trying to now persuade them of. It's a fulfillment of what the Old Testament had always said. It's where it always was headed. It was the place it was always going, the destination we were bound for. What he says in these verses is essentially this. The old covenant was a reminder of sin. The new covenant brings the removal of sin. That's the main idea. Those are your two points, the reminder of sin, the removal of sin. And I won't be filing everything neatly under those two headings, but that'll help you sort of keep this clear as we move through the passage together. He starts out in verse 1 by saying, think again about everything you know about the Old Testament sacrifices. Don't put them out of your mind. That's not what we're doing here. Take into account all those things that you know and remember about those Old Testament sacrifices. Remember how we've said that they were shadows, Pictures that represented the better things to come, but were never those better things themselves. We said before you can tell a lot about a person by looking at their shadow, can't you? You know, not, not a lot of detail, but we can make out a lot by looking at somebody's shadow. We can tell, you know, how big a boy is he, you know? We can tell if it's a, if it's a man or a woman, long hair, short hair, sort of what kind of clothes they might have on. Tell a lot by looking at a shadow, but the shadow is an incomplete picture. It's not the real thing. And it's not to say it's fake, right? It's a true representation of the real thing, but it's not the real thing itself. So with that in mind, okay, he says, think how every year those same old sacrifices were repeated, but never actually did anything about your sin. If they had, they wouldn't have needed to be repeated over and over again. That's what he says in verse 2. That's what they couldn't do. They couldn't remove sin. What they could do and did do, he says in verse 3, is serve as a continual reminder of sin every year. God's people were reminded that their sin separated them from God. And they needed a sacrifice that worked. Because the sacrifices that they were using didn't. They didn't work. 
For it is impossible, verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All right, so now there, there's the overview of, of his argument, of his reasoning. There's the contrast. Now walk it out with me, okay? We have a sin problem. That sin problem needs to be removed. They were given instructions on how to do it in the Old Testament sacrifice system, and they know it's never worked. Okay, that's where the author has led them up to this point, uh, reasoning with them and running them out to the, the, the logical end, run, running out what they believe to, to its logical end. That's an effective way to witness to people, by the way, you know, just as sort of an aside here. You can take notes on how to talk to your unbelieving friends and family from the author here. You know, and, and they're probably not going to let you just stand there and monologue like this, right, and just lay out your whole, your whole presentation. The reality is, in real life, in real time, it's going to be sort of a back and a forth. But, but you can ask questions about what it is that they believe to help them see what, what, where it is what they believe takes them. Like, where does that go? You can walk it out with them like the author does here and show them where it dead ends and then point them to Christ. That's the idea. I don't want to get off too much onto that tangent there, but sometimes the best way to lead someone to Christ is to get them lost first. <laughs> because they don't know their need of a Savior. They don't know their desperate need of a Savior. And King's Church is going to be offering... Uh, an evangelism workshop in January where we'll actually start to cover some of that kind of stuff and, and help equip you to be able to do that very thing that we're talking about because it's often not a lack of desire that keeps us from evangelizing, right? We, we, we all know we should be about sharing the gospel and reaching people for Christ. And if we don't do it, it's usually because nobody's taking the time to show us and to get us comfortable with something that really is uncomfortable for us. So uh, we, we want to be able to do that for you. There'll be more information about that uh, coming up in January, but back to our passage here, that what the author does, he does just that. He brings them to the logical end of all that they've been believing and trusting in, and then he points them to Christ. He says, we have a sin problem. That sin problem has to be removed. We received instruction on how to do it in the Old Testament, and we know it's never worked. So why did God tell them to do it? So they would look to God to provide the sacrifice for them that would work. And Jesus is it. They knew God's justice must be served and his grace must be received in order to be forgiven. And Jesus is it. And so the lights should be coming on for them at this point if they haven't already. You know, it just reminds us too uh, how good we have it as 21st century Christians, having the Bible to read in its entirety. You know, you realize at this time the New Testament's still being written. And we've got the whole thing cover to cover that we can read for ourselves. What a privilege that is. Reading the New Testament shines light on the Old Testament. Here, they're seeing some of that for the first time. Seeing it for the very first time. The author quotes Psalm 40 there in verses 5 through 7. That's where that's coming from. And it's the answer to their present problem buried all the way back in their past. After saying it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, he tells them what can and points to the Messiah that the Old Testament promised. Verse 5, consequently, 
When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Psalm 40 there. That's a messianic psalm. It speaks of the coming Messiah. They knew that. This is not news to them. They knew that. They knew they were expecting a Messiah. Well, what does it say the Messiah was coming to do? Not offer those same sacrifices. He has no interest in coming to offer animal sacrifices as their high priest. His whole purpose in coming into the world was to do the will of the Father, which was to atone for the sins of man. He is going to be the sacrifice. He is going to take on a body prepared for him, verse 5, in order to be the sacrifice needed to cleanse man from sin. He's going to make a full atonement for sin. That's the purpose that he has come into the world. And I love that, that very first line of verse 5 there. It says, Christ came into the world and he said, he came bodily and he spoke. You see what's happening there. The author is saying Jesus said this. Jesus said this. He attributes Psalm 40 to Jesus himself. That Jesus was the one who, who said that. David wrote the psalm, but Jesus is the one speaking of himself. Jesus isn't quoting David. David, in a sense, is quoting Jesus. The Old Testament is quoting Jesus. You see that? There's, there's this echo of Jesus' words back then catching up to the present. He's what that was all about. All of the Old Testament was all about him. And, and how do we know? Well, some of these things jump out to us. They're obvious as we look at it. We can see sort of the, 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 how these things connect. But Jesus himself said it, didn't he? Jesus said all of the Old Testament was about him. You think about uh, the last chapter of Luke, right? Jesus is risen from the dead. This is before his ascension, post-resurrection, pre-ascension. And he catches up with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're all kind of like, man, what are we going to do now? And uh, they, they, they realize he is he is. Uh, the, the risen Lord, and they have a little Bible study on the way, which I don't know about you, I would have loved to have been a part of, but he, he opens up the, the, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, and anytime you see that, that's the whole Bible, that's the Old Testament, that's what he's saying, but he says the, how the law and the prophets and the Psalms, they all spoke about me, let me show you how. So all of the Old Testament is about Jesus. And then he says, thus it is written, Remember, they're worried, you know, Jesus died now. He was the one. He was the guy. Now he's dead. What do we do? He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's what had to happen. The promised Messiah would have to suffer and die and rise bodily from the grave for the removal of sin. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, verse 5 in our passage, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus had a body. Still does. Verse 7. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. 
as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Come to do your will. Not to remind people of their sin, but to remove their sin from them. He knew that's why he was coming. The animals didn't know they were going to be sacrificed. You realize that? You thought about that before? You know, as we've been going through these passages and hearing all about how they did all this stuff, the animals themselves, they, you know, they're just kind of sauntering up there. They don't know <laughs> what's about to happen to them. They don't know why they're there. That kind of dawned on me this week as I was working through the text and preparing the sermon, and what actually made me think of it was this, uh, this comedian that Amanda and I like a lot. He was talking about how he grew up in Backwoods, Tennessee, and they used to go to this rinky-dink little fair where they had donkeys that would uh, dive off the high dive into a pool. <laughs> and he says, I use the term jump loosely, okay? These, these, these donkeys were falling off the high dive, okay? But it just made me think of that. The animals offered in the sacrifices didn't know their purpose. They didn't know why they were there. They weren't into it. They didn't know why they came into the world. Jesus did. He came to die because he loves you. It was intentional and it was relational. He had you in mind. The animals didn't intend to die. They didn't care about you or your sin. Jesus does. He cares about you. He cares about your sin. And he willingly offered himself up for you to remove it from you. And it worked. It was the Father's will to remove it from you. And he provided the sacrifice for you that would do it. So the first is done away with in order to establish the second, verse 10. That's where the author takes them. We don't need the reminder anymore. We have the removal. And by that will, that covenant, that new covenant in Christ's blood, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Look at verse 11 right after that. Remember what we said weeks ago about how Jesus sat down? Remember that one? Jesus sat down. This choice of words here in verses 11 through 12 is not an accident, okay? You see, he says there, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The work of removing sins is done. We don't need the sacrifices that remind us we're waiting for them to be removed. We need to look to the sacrifice that removed them already. How can we know, though? How can we be so sure it worked that our sins have actually, finally, been removed from us? How can we be so sure? The Holy Spirit tells us. The Holy Spirit assures us, verse 15, verse 15. He says in verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. He says the Holy Spirit says that. Where's the Holy Spirit say that? Jeremiah 31. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. What that tells us is the author believes the word of God is the word of God. Right? That 
David spoke in Psalm 40, that, that, that was the words of the pre-incarnate Christ. What the prophet Jeremiah spoke was the very word of God by the Holy Spirit. And Christ's sacrifice is the fulfillment of them all. Take his word for it. Take his word for it. Believe in the name of the Son of God who was sent for sinners. And you can have that assurance that he intends for you to have. I want you to imagine for a second that you're one of them here. You're sitting there. You're hearing all this. And you're stuck on the old ways. Just come into that moment for a minute. You're hearing all this and you're stuck on the old ways. Why? Why are you stuck on the old ways? Because you think your sin still needs to be removed. What other reason can there be? Why else would you be going through all the paces? Why else would you be trying to make yourself whole? Why else would you be struggling with, with worthiness and trying to make yourself worthy? Why go through all that? The only reason you do that is because there's this awareness and this anxiety that you're on the hook, that God's angry with sin and you've got plenty of it. And so you're going to manage it the best way you know how. That's what they were doing. It's what you've been taught. But now you hear none of it works. It's impossible. And you hear that Jesus' sacrifice for sin was accomplished. It's, a, it's accomplished the impossible. That your sins have finally and fully been forgiven. That you have been reconciled to the God who made you by the blood of the Lamb. You hear that because that sinless lamb died, God remembers your sins no more. And where there is forgiveness for your sin, verse 18, there is no longer any offering or sacrifice to be made anymore. You're sitting there, you hear that. And a wave of relief just rushes over you. The, the guilt falls off of you in pieces. Can you imagine? Better question. Have you imagined? Do you know what that forgiveness feels like? Many don't because there's a hard veneer on their hearts. Like a bitter candy coating of religion that shields them from receiving what can only be received by grace alone. People say, well, what do I have to do? What do I have to do so God will accept me? Believe on Jesus. Yeah, but what do I have to do? Believe on Jesus. God does not accept people based on their performance. He accepts people based on Christ's performance. And if you have believed in him, he will not reject you based on your performance. That is good news. It's called the gospel. And y'all, if it's not true, nobody should believe it. You hear me? 
If it's not true, nobody should believe it. If it is true, everyone should believe it. And that's why we have this message ready on our lips. Ready to share with those who are far from God but close to us. It is this life-giving word that we depend on for the salvation of our souls. Your sins aren't minor things. They're disgraceful. But we can't dwell on them. You look to Christ. He didn't die to remind you of your sin. He died to remove your sin from you. We rejoice in that. We marvel in that. Reflect on who he is and what he has done about your sin. It was the Father's will that you be cleansed of your sin. And he's done it. Jesus came to offer himself up for you. Let that sink in. You know, as we think of the many ways in which we fail, you know, we begin our service, don't we, with a confession of sin, corporate confession of sin, right? Is it because we want to, you know, flog ourselves and beat ourselves up? No, it's because we recognize that God is holy. We are not. There's only one way that we come to him. That's through the blood of his son. We recognize that we are sinners, worthy of his just wrath. We realize the only way we come is through Christ alone. We come to him reverently. You know, we're not like on this buddy-buddy kind of thing. We're children adopted into his family. And so again, as we think of the many ways that we fail throughout the week, where we sin against him in thought and word and deed, where we fall short, we recognize this great forgiveness that we have, and we don't take it for granted. See? Rejoicing in our salvation leads to obedience. Our obedience doesn't lead to salvation. But as we meditate on who Christ is and what he has done for us, what he has accomplished for us, that he has accomplished what was impossible for us, it leads us into a greater love and admiration for him, a desire to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which we were called, like my brother David said earlier. So the old covenant says, you need to see what sin has done to you. And that's an important message. We can't get by without it. The old covenant says you need to see what your sin has done to you. The gospel says you need to see what Christ has done for you. His sacrifice doesn't just remind us of our sin, it removes our sin completely. As we partake of the Lord's Supper here in just a moment, I want you to hear the word body differently. He was physically sacrificed for your sins. He knew what he was doing. That's why he came, signed up for it. He knew he was doing it for you. He had you in mind. He offered himself once and a sacrifice was accepted by God for the forgiveness of your sins. And so as you come around this table, okay, a reminder that this is not a reminder of your sins. It is a reminder of the removal of your sins. 